Oh, don't get me started on the Native Americans. Oh my God. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. Bringing it back, baby. Welcome back to uh, the Cold War Show, episode 132. Hell yeah, hour three. (laughs) I am fucking exhausted, which means something good's going to happen the next hour. Hour three. (laughs) Hour three. I I, I applaud you, sir. (laughs) I know. That's why I'm embarrassed. (laughs) That's my favorite. Well, no, see, no, because not to mention her vagina. Welcome back. <laughs> uh, in our last episode, we were talking about the UN Security Council vote uh, after yeah. the invasion where the Russians weren't there. The Soviets weren't right. there in the Security Council. They uh, they stormed out in protest <laughs> because six months earlier, uh, because the the uh, UN wouldn't give communist China a seat at the table. Uh, unfortunately, they weren't there to stop the UN justifying uh, action. Now, the US has supported some pretty terrible foreign leaders in its history, Ray. No, uh, that doesn't often, sound right. Often, it's the case <laughs> of the least <laughs> worst option. <laughs> See? Thank you. Uh, Give me some examples. I was, Give me one. <laughs> I was looking <laughs> I was looking for the no that doesn't sound right clip, but I'll just go with this. <laughs> Bit of a cunt. Stop laughing at the top of yourself. <laughs> is Noriega He was one of our guys right, right in the ball. I'm trying to remember. Was Noriega Oh one well of our there's, guys? you know Saddam Hussein, Noriega. Yeah. Uh, uh, the the uh, Shah of Iran. Uh, yeah, good times. Uh, we <laughs> we could go. There's a long list, long, <laughs> long, long list. Um, it reads on that. But list. Um, Batista yeah. in Cuba. But yes, Simmery was one of those. I mean, um, usually I think it is the least worst option. I don't think Americans go out uh, and look for the worst possible guy to put in charge of this place, but what they're looking right. for is the guy who is most likely to support U.S. interests in the region and get shit done. Right. Can they keep bust the place heads. together? Are they hard right. enough to bust heads, and, but will they also support our interests? That's the magic Kiss our ass. combination. Bust and heads, kiss our ass. Right. Yes, and Singh Marie was definitely one of those. Um, gotcha. I dug up uh, some newspaper articles on newspaper.com from around this period. New York Times on the 27th of June 1950 wrote, the unpopularity of the Singh Marie government and the questionable political and military reliability of the army and police force are the greatest weakness of the defending forces. 
I just want to put into context here that Americans at, at the time in 1950 knew that Sigmund yes. Rhee was extremely unpopular in his own country. Not just the American political leaders and military leaders knew that, but the general public knew that because it was reported in American newspapers. Right. People who read, read the newspapers anyway knew this say. to be true. Yeah. In April 1950, the Chicago, the Chicago Tribune ran a story saying that Dean Acheson was threatening to pull aid for Korea unless they increased taxes cut expenditures, reduced inflation, and held new elections in May. Now, Rhee had been trying to postpone the elections until later in the year, partly because he knew an invasion was coming, partly because he wanted to have more time to get rid of his enemies, uh, but mm. Acheson made him do it. Now, again, you know, I've talked in the last couple of episodes about bias and propaganda and... and um, Imagine if you read a story that said Stalin was threatening to pull aid from North Korea unless right. they, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, brought about agrarian reform and right. uh, did a whole bunch of economic and military things. You know, right. I'm pretty sure the view of many people in the West would be, see... See uh, Soviet influence, puppet government, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But the American right. media were more than happy to run stories in 1950 saying that Dean Acheson was threatening to pull aid from South Korea unless they did what the Americans wanted uh, but didn't call it a puppet regime. Um, right. that's, it's okay when America does it. But if Stalin was to do it, it would be signs that it was a puppet oh. regime. And I'm yeah. not, again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not taking the piss here. I'm being serious. This is how propaganda yeah. works. There's a great quote from I.F. Stone's book that um, I posted on Facebook. He basically said that. Uh, let's shit, let me um, dig this up because it's a good quote. Oh, no, I didn't. Shit, where did I where did I use this? Anyway, fuck it. I have Stone wrote somewhere that um, the uh, way that prop war propaganda works is it's not through outright lying, mm -hmm. but it's through omission and uh, like exaggeration. But it's also the the words that you choose to use that hint at things rather than blatantly lying. Right. And this is one of the things. So when when we yeah. do it, it's okay. We're trying to lead their economy in the right direction by holding aid over right, them. towards us. When the other side does it, right. you know, it's a puppet it's a puppet regime. Evil. Right. Yeah. Mm. So um but the US was still dictating how the country was being run long after they had supposedly handed it over to the South Korean Control is basically my point here. Right. But see, here's the thing. Um, Ree is corrupt, he's brutal, and he's not very good at his job. The, the economy's falling apart. The people aren't happy. Things are probably being run a little bit better to some degree in the North. At least they have, they have party discipline. But here's the thing. None of that matters because as soon as Kim's forces comes across the border, Ree gets a do-over. Everything has been swiped clean. He is now our guy. He is defending. He might be all these horrible things, 
but he is not a communist. In fact, he hates communists, and he's been trying to wipe them out ever since he's been in charge. So he's our guy. And, but here's the thing. Now, I read this in, in several different books, but I was kind of skeptical of it. It says at this point that even though Re, you know, bad guy, he, he he's he's now our guy because they're coming across the border. This isn't just a chance for Truman to show that he is tough on communism. This isn't just a chance for the people in the State Department or the people in the Truman administration to say, this is our our opportunity to stand up to communism like we lost China. Supposedly, this is an opportunity for certain elements in most governments, not just um, in Europe, but in the Middle East and other parts of Asia as well. It's a, it's a chance for everybody to come together to grab hold of the fear, the absolute fear that they have of communism, supposedly, and come together and come together and fight against or draw a line in the sand against what supposedly Stalin is doing. I don't know my I don't know how much of that I believe, but I certainly do believe that certain elements in almost every country and every government feared communism. They were happy to join with the Americans to stand up and fight against what was going on in South Korea. Um, but again, I just wonder to what degree that's true when someone who is a, obviously a Western writer says the world was afraid of communism and had a chance to finally manifest that fear and to come together and take a stand. But the point is, it is it is real. They've got the UN ba- backing. America is going to call on everybody to get them to help. And a lot of countries are going to respond because of the fear, whether it's genuine or whether it's been contrived through propaganda for the last five years against communism. fear that the US had at the time and, yeah. and along with other Western nations was mm-hmm. that the communists would take control of large chunks of Europe and Asia. And again, I, I, I want to be really clear about this and I know I've fucking said this ad nauseum, but I'm going to keep saying it because, you know, I know most of you listening to this have got a lifetime of propaganda uh, yeah. in your brains that, that we have to unpick here. It takes a while. And it takes yes. time. Yes. But when we say the communists were going to take over, we're not talking about armies like dark clouds swooping in, armies of like, uh, 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 you know, uh, <laughs> like Demons on bats fl- flying right. over and dark, smoky clouds uh, coming in. Yeah, it's not like stormtroopers. We're talking about uh, homegrown, indigenous, 
political movements yeah. in these countries of people going, you know what, fuck the capitalists. Right. They caused World War II. They caused World War One. Um, we've been yes. oppressed by capitalists uh, for, for decades or centuries, kept poor, kept uneducated, kept illiterate, no political power. Um, communism offers right. a vision. Socialism and communism offers a vision for the people. Yes, these political movements may have been at various stages, supported economically and militarily and, and with training or whatever mm-hmm. by the Soviets. But as we've already seen, Stalin didn't support Mao until he'd already won. He didn't support Ho until uh, well after Stalin was dead, actually, before Ho really got any Soviet right. support. Um, so these are homegrown political movements that we're talking about. Now, but still, the US and and uh, the other Western powers were concerned that the communists would become successful, politically successful. In large, that, oh, by the way, that's not to say that these, these homegrown indigenous uh, communist movements wouldn't have resorted uh, to force to take back power if right. they had to. Uh, like the, the the Bolsheviks did in Russia or the Viet Cong had to do in uh, uh, Indochina or Vietnam and as the Cubans had to do uh, in Cuba, Fidel Castro had to do in Cuba, they were prepared, some of them were prepared to use force to get rid of the capitalists yeah. and, 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 you know, take power. Right. The... Uh, uh, you know, yeah, the the rising up of the proletariat. I mean, I think that they realised uh, that the capitalists weren't going to willingly give up yeah. power and would, in fact, use all of the means at their disposal to prevent the people from winning an election. Um, you know, we've seen this already in various points of our story. Uh, Ho Chi Minh. Uh, you know, was was trying to negotiate with the French to right. uh, uh, let the the people have power, and the French were like, mm, "No, we don't we think so. All. Fuck yeah. you." Uh, he, he had to resort to using yeah. force to get power because the French wouldn't give it willingly. Same thing in Cuba. I touched a, lightly on this when we did the Fidel Castro um, obit episodes. People who know anything about the Castro's history know that before he was a guerrilla revolutionary, he was a lawyer, and as a lawyer, he tried to use the justice system and the legal system in Cuba under Batista to get the constitution changed. Mm. Um, and basically, it, it was shut down, um, you know, by Batista. So, force for Fidel was a last resort. Right. Force for Ho Chi Minh was a last resort. Well, of course, when you have capitalists in power, uh, they are going to use their control of the media, their control of the military, their control of the economy, their control of the legal system, their control of the police to prevent uh, losing mm-hmm. power, to stop themselves from losing power. That's ab- That makes sense. That's absolutely what you should expect them to do. So the people, usually what you'll find in these countries is the people went through a period of trying to get power peacefully through protests, through through attempts to change the, the constitution. This is true in Russia as well. Went through decades, generations of trying to get power peacefully. These 
these attempts were brutally shut down right. by the capitalists. And eventually the people go, okay, well, we have to resort to right. force. So I'm not saying that the communists in all these countries yeah. weren't prepared to do that. Some of them definitely were. Usually you find, as we see in Russia, not all the socialists wanted to resort to force. That was the major difference between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks in 1917. The Mensheviks wanted the peaceful, gradual transition of power. They wanted to uh, have a, uh, a system where they worked with the uh, other political parties in a peaceful way. And the Bolsheviks were like, well, fuck that shit. It's not going to work. Uh, we have to take yeah. power by force. Now, agree or disagree, but that was that was their point of view. It's like, listen, they're, they're, you can't trust the capitalists. They will nod and smile and then they will stab <laughs> you in the back at the first opportunity because there's no way they're going to give up power yeah. willingly. We have to take it. They're weak. It's World War One. They're weakened. We need to strike while the iron's hot and take it That's by force. That's human nature. Yeah. Anywho. Yeah. Well, it's it's just it's it's logic. I mean, they're not going to give it up. The the capitalists. That's human nature. Right. Logic says you have to take it. But if you try for years or decades or generations to take power uh, peacefully and you yeah. fail, and we're talking about. The majority, the people taking it from the minority of capitalists, the people that are right. oppressed, people of Russia, Vietnam, uh, uh, Cuba, uh, uh, Korea, uh, uh, China, uh, you know, all of these countries, these people have been massively oppressed. They were kept, you know, poor, uneducated, illiterate. You know, it's not like, well, you know, we'll just take yeah, our time and, you know, if it takes another hundred years of our kids, our kids getting oppressed and fucking murdered and yeah, raped, then yeah. so be. No, eventually people get to a point where they go, fuck you, it's time to, it's time to take power and taking power by force is, is, appears to them to be the only reasonable option. That's what leads to revolutions. People don't wake up one day and go, you know what, I'm a bit bored. <laughs> Let's start an armed revolution. Yeah, half of us are probably going to get but killed in the process, but, it. you know, I don't know. I'm not, not doing anything yeah. else. What are you doing? Um, <laughs> you know, they, they, it, they, they've driven into a corner. A people's revolution is what happens. I've just been reading. You ever read um, Hemingway, For Whom the Bell Tolls? Long time ago. Great book. I'd never read it. Um, and in my... Attempts now to read, you know, everything that's ever been written right. by anyone. I'm I'm reading it in my spare time. It's like between one a.m. and two a.m. And uh, you know, it's obviously set, you know, during uh, uh, the rebellion against Franco. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, the hero is an American who's fighting for the 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 people's guerrilla army against the fascists. Right and um, and you know and and a lot of, a lot of the characters in the book are the the Spanish guerrillas articulating you know why they're fighting against the fascists and they know a lot of us are probably going to die a lot of our children are probably going to yeah. die um, that is the nature of the civil war but we're doing it we're fighting it we're willing to sacrifice ourselves and the lives of our wives and our children and our brothers and sisters. Because we've had enough. We've had enough yeah. of the oppression. Enough's enough. It's time to, it's time to fight yeah. for control. And uh, I don't know how I got into that. <laughs> but, oh, yeah, I do. So 
the US and the Western powers yep. were concerned that the communists would take over large chunks of Europe and Asia and eventually be powerful enough to support communist movements in their own countries, in the United States, in Australia, in the United Kingdom, in Canada, mm. in France, etc. Um, and that was why they needed to shut that shit down right. and stop them from, um, you know, uh, uh, surviving and prospering as an economic, socioeconomic ideology in the middle of the 20th century. Yeah. Now, fortunately for the United States leading the shindig, and unfortunately for Kim in North Korea, from the Americans' perspective, it's very easy to spin the tale that Kim was so blatant with his assault that he came right across. He massed his troops. It doesn't matter what statements he makes after the war starts about this is the South's fault because of border incursions, because both sides have been doing it. It doesn't matter. The Americans are going to have no trouble spinning this as a slam dunk that Kim is the aggressor here. There's no wiggle room. This is not Poland. When the Soviets came to Poland, first it was to push the Germans out. Okay, they did that. And then they held on and they occupied it uh, until the end of the war. And then you have to hold on to it because it's a mess for security reasons. Okay, but then the, you know, little curtain comes down and you really can't tell what's going on in Poland and what are the Soviets doing. And before we know it, supposedly the people have voted for a, a communist government. The point is, the Americans couldn't see it all happening. They didn't know what was going on. That's So at least Stalin could say, hey, they're the ones who wanted it. But here it's blatant aggression. Kim is trying to take uh, South Korea. He's trying to take the, the Reed government down. And so the Americans can work with that. And he, but and I think we said this enough times, so I'll, I'll just do it really quickly. But even this uh, senior South Korean officer said many years later, if Kim really wanted to get the South, by far his best course would have been to do nothing his biggest mistake was attacking us. If he'd waited for a little while, Rhee was so unpopular, had in fact lost the last election, they could have probably worked something out where the North takes over and there's not this massive war, but it doesn't matter. Kim, for whatever reason, because of his psychological makeup or his impatience, whatever he attacks, Rhee is now the darling of the West. Everybody's going to get behind the United States who's getting behind Rhee. They're going to draw a line in the sand, and the war is now on. Finally, the Americans and Truman specifically can say, I'm about to show you how soft I am on communism. He is going to gear up for this. Yeah, but uh, look, I got I got to... <clears throat> clarify a few things there again. Yeah. Like, um, from where I sit, Kim's position looks pretty simple. The Koreans in the North and the South all wanted to unify their country. Mm -hmm. Wasn't just the North that wanted to unify it, the South did as well. Um, the, the Americans are on record as understanding that. Seaman Rhee, you know, made it very clear that he wanted to invade the South. He, he uh, sorry. He wanted to invade the north. Right, take it over. Singman wanted to invade the north, and one of the one of the stated reasons the Americans weren't giving him military supplies, apart from the fact they didn't have any because they <laughs> got rid right. of it all, um, they run out of money, was that uh, they knew he would use it to invade the north. Th third, um, like Napoleon in eighteen twelve, it made more sense for Kim to attack first than just wait and be fighting on your own soil. Right. If he thought Syngman Rhee was going to attack him, which, you know, there were reasons to believe, if not then, that at some point uh, Syngman Rhee 
publicly, you know, had stated or to, to his American advisors anyway that he wanted to invade the North and take it. So, you know, if you're Kim, you're going to strike first and you're going to wait for a point when Syngman Rhee is at his weakest sure. politically and militarily to do that, which was immediately after he lost the May elections. <laughs> right. um, fourth, South Korea was rounding up, imprisoning and executing Koreans. They needed to, to be defended for humanitarian reasons. Yeah. And five, the US had put a come and get this hot pussy <laughs> sign up on the 38th parallel. Yeah. They yeah. had publicly said, we don't give a shit about South Korea. We're not even giving them any guns or bullets. You know, yeah. basically it was, a, you know, how can we make this more obvious for you, Kim? Come and take it. Right. Now, yeah. when you've got a, when you, when you got your chance. Yeah. Here, here's my rebuttal. I'm not saying that you're wrong. I was giving the American, pro-American, pro-Truman perspective. But here's the other part. The truth now, now that that Kim has launched his attack, the truth doesn't matter. Because even what the people in South Korea think, feel, want doesn't matter. Because one, Ri is going to back Truman in whatever he says and does because he needs him and he wants to stay in power and he needs his weapons. Two, Truman has got the perfect cause, supposed blatant aggression, and is going to get the free, not the free world, the non-communist world supporting him, backing him up, going in there attacking. It doesn't matter what's true or what's not true because of the events on the ground. Truman's got, either he's, he's either got what he's needed or he's going to turn it to the advantage as best he can. The truth is gone. The truth doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, you're right, but it does on our show. Absolutely. And I want to make sure oh, that people listening to this have the right context. And I want to get back to Abraham Lincoln. Here we go. Like, every time I'm writing in these notes about the North invading the South, I think of the American Civil War. Um, you know, did uh, people, Americans go, oh, you know, Kim, horrible guy, he invaded the South. Abraham Lincoln invaded the South. Oh, well, uh, yeah, but he was great. That was awesome. He had to do that. And getting back to my big rant earlier on about the cause of civil wars, um, people fighting civil wars because of uh, decades or centuries of oppression, Mm -hmm. the North wasn't being oppressed in the US. The North wasn't being oppressed by the South. There was no foreign power in the South that, you know, was participating in an oppression of the people. Right. No, I'm talking about fucking America, dude. America, oh, keep up. Sorry. I'm talking about America. your civil war. Sorry. When Lincoln invaded the South, when he yes. took Fort Sumter, right, it was the beginning of the Civil War, the, the South weren't oppressing the North. There was no nope. foreign power in the South that needed to be kicked out. Nope. There was, he just did it because uh, he was like, oh, they, they're secede, they seceding from the Union, setting up an independent country like South Korea. And he was like, no, we can't have that. No, can't have that. Got to stop that. Yeah. I yeah. mean, we, not on my watch. <laughs> Americans fucking love Lincoln, build statues to him, carve his fucking head in a mountain, uh, you know, have a big statue of him sitting on a throne, staring down at them in their national right. capital. Love Lincoln, hero, God, Jesus. <clears throat> Kim Il-sung does exactly the same thing, but with better justification. The South was actually Ooh. killing, arresting and killing 
thousands of Koreans and there was right. a foreign power in the South that was dictating a puppet government that was executing and imprisoning Koreans. And he was like, well, fuck that. No, but he's the bad guy. So, again, like what I'm trying to encourage people to do is like see the hypocrisy there. See it from the other side. See the hypocrisy as an independent yeah. observer. Why is Lincoln treated differently to Kim Il-sung? I'm going to have to walk my dog and unpack that. So thank you if I can't get any sleep tonight. You're welcome. So, uh, yes, as it was, uh, what Kim did gave Re what he lacked was legitimacy and a pretext to get the US and the UN involved in supporting a war. Now, after the UNSC vote, the Atchison met with Truman. They were apparently all still shocked, although I really don't believe that. I believe that at least Atchison uh, had planned this and knew it was coming. Mm. Um <clears throat> You know, the theory is that they thought the Soviets would try and test their will at some stage, but it would be somewhere in Europe, it'd be Germany, it'd be Greece, it'd be Turkey, it'd be Iran even, not Korea. Because, you know, Korea was easier for the US to support than it was for the Soviets. MacArthur was sitting next door in Japan. Yeah. Atchison later wrote, plainly this attack did not amount to a causes belli against the Soviet Union. Equally plainly, it was an open, undisguised challenge to our internationally accepted position as the protector of South Korea, an area of great importance to the security of American-occupied Japan. To back away from this challenge in view of our capacity for meeting it would be highly destructive of the power and prestige of the United States. Now, point one, protector of South Korea, not sponsor of a puppet regime in South Korea. Two, the spin in this is outstanding. It was of great importance to the security of American-occupied Japan, except you deliberately left it out whenever you talked about the things that were of great importance to you. It wasn't one of them. Thirdly, if it was such great importance, why the fuck didn't you give them weapons to defend themselves when they kept telling you we were going to get invaded? I mean, like the hypocrisy, the, the spin, the bullshit in this is outstanding. But you will struggle to find many American historians, or British in the case of Max Hastings, call out the bullshit in statements like that. It is quite obviously, from everything I've talked about in the last six episodes, it is obviously bullshit. They invited Kim in. Big pussy, come get it. You know, Al Swearingen saying, (laughs) what I have to say is this. (laughs) Where's my, hold on, hold on, don't go anywhere. Swearingen. Pussy half off. Where's my pussy half off clip? <laughs> well, I guess when it starts pissing rain in here, you know who to blame, huh? Now, I know words circulate. Indians kill the family on the Spearfish Road. Now, it's not for me to tell anyone in this camp what to do. Much as I don't want more people getting their throats cut, their scalps lifted, or any other godless thing that these godless bloodthirsty heathens do or even if someone wants to ride out in darkest night but I will tell you this I'd use tonight to get myself organized ride out in the morning clear headed and starting tomorrow morning I will offer a personal $50 bounty for every decapitated head of as many of these 
godless heathen cocksuckers as anyone can bring in tomorrow with no upper limit. That's all I say on that subject, sick that rounds on the house. God rest the souls of that poor family. Amen. And pussy's half price, next 15 minutes. <laughs> You know, that <laughs> such a great scene. So, you know, they were basically inviting Kim in uh, with a big pussy's half off next 15 minutes sign <laughs> to say, to later turn around and go, oh, we were all so shocked. Yeah. How? Come on. How could he do such a thing? Fuck off. Now, it's not just me, Cam the commie, <laughs> saying this. Um, right. Atchison was held largely to blame at the time for sending misleading signals to Pyongyang and Moscow. Mochio, Muchio, his own ambassador in Seoul, had been warning for months that by excluding South Korea from the list of vital interests in Asia right. and the visible lack of political, financial and military support for Rhee's administration was sending a message to Kim and Stalin that it was okay to take action. The US was simply not ready to assist South Korea. Everyone knew that. Um, so to then turn around afterwards and go, oh, I'm so shocked there was gambling going on in this establishment <laughs> is just blatant, blatant horse pucky. Yeah. And, and see, what makes it so interesting, again, and I, and I just want to keep harping on this because NSC 68 is all about here's a goal, but how do you achieve it? Because, And I can't remember if we've given the stats, but in 1945, at the end of World War II, the United States had 12 million men in uniform in 1950, 1.6 million. We'd been spending $82 billion a year in World War II, now we're spending in 1950, $13 billion, which is 5% of GNP. And we're going to go into this later, but Truman wants that number even lower. He wants it to be down to 3% of either GDP or GNP. And as you said earlier, you know, almost every, every army unit, excuse me, almost every unit in the army was understrength, under-trained, under-equipped. MacArthur didn't have shit. The people had just been lying around for the last couple of years. It was a plush assignment to be sent to Japan. I mean, you could hire people, the locals, to be your slaves for cents on the day. I mean, this was not a fighting force anymore. But suddenly, between what Kim does and NSC 68, we're supposed to gear up and fight the good fight against communism. Yeah, and MacArthur, of course, blamed everyone but himself. <laughs> but, of course, everyone knew the old rule. Ha-ha, you fool! You fell victim to one of the classic blunders. The most famous is never get involved in a land war in Asia, but only slightly less well-known is this. Never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. He got involved in a land war in Asia. Jeez. Um, Now, Admiral Forrest Sherman, who is the chief of naval operations, later said, I was fully aware of the hazards involved in fighting Asiatics on the Asiatic mainland, which is something that, as a naval officer, I've grown up to believe should be avoided if possible. Um, Now... Sherman was involved in trying to mend things after the infamous revolt of the admirals, Mm -hmm. 
What can you tell us about the revolt of the admirals, Ray? Yeah, so this is um, a very important moment, but little remembered in American history. Because one, Truman's about to be in a major fight with his military. Two, he doesn't know it at first. It's being conducted by his underlings. And three, it's to decide how the next war America is in, and of course they're assuming the Russians, is going to be conducted. You would think now, because we assume all now, that that would be decided by the political masters. But this revolt of the admirals is what helps make that decision so obvious to us today. And again, Truman had no idea he was blindsided. And this takes place between the end of World War II and the beginning of Korean War, which, of course, no one expected at first, but it's right around the corner. And it's not going to be the war that all the admirals and generals think it's going to be. So at the end of World War II, Washington, of course, is concerned about spending. Truman wanted cuts deep and quick. And so he tells this to the heads of the uh, various military branches. And it's also tied into something that the general of the army, George C. Marshall, came up with when he called for the unification of the Department of War and the Department of the Navy. And that was back in 1943. And the debate had been going on ever since up until the end of World War II. Now, back at the end of World War II, 1945, the United States has the largest navy in the world. It's a very proud um, branch. It has a lot of traditions, and they take this very seriously. And now they're the largest in the world. But Truman comes along and says, stop all production, and I want you to start cutting. And here's what I want. And he says this to all, all the military branches. For the first year, I want you to cut by 66%, which is incredible. And then after that, in four years, I want your budgets cut by a total of 90%. So these are absolutely insane numbers. Still, the Army and the Air Force go along with it more or less. They keep the latest models of whatever equipment or weapons they have. They get rid of the rest or they sell the rest. But then there comes the U.S. Navy. Now, again, anybody who's ever studied military history knows that the Navy, along with the Army and the Marines, has a lot of proud traditions. And it's their job to protect their own bureaucracies, their own budgets. So the Navy is dragging its feet. Needless to say, Truman does not get his 66% cut the first year. Now, in 1946, the ranking men of the Air Force say to President Truman, to Congress, to everyone, you know what? The other branches... They're obsolete. If there's another war, if there's another Pearl Harbor, all we have to do is fly over on a bomber, drop an atomic bomb or four, and it's over. All you need is a long-range bomber force. And to Truman's thinking, that made a lot of sense. So that's what he wants to do in the future. So next year, 1947, Truman and the Republican Congress are still obsessed with all the spending that's going on by the military. And they really do feel that the national debt is going to ruin the U.S. economy and they don't want to go back to the Great Depression. So they make an agreement and they tell the military that by 1949, military spending will only be 4% of GDP. And in 1951, it will be 3%. There are your goals. Deal with it. Now, of course, the U.S. Navy is really worried because it's been dragging its feet. So the Navy, instead of just complying because they, you know, they do have political masters, they need to find their niche. So they, they're looking for something so how, how we can specialize in justifying keeping everything that we have, the largest Navy in the world. And then comes a possible reprieve. In 1947, there's the uh, 1947 National Security Act, and it's passed by Congress. It reorganizes the U.S. military. There are going to be now three equal departments, the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force, which is now independent. 
the Unified Command created would be called the Department of Defense, and the National Security Council was created, as was the CIA. So at this moment in time, the U.S. Navy is left alone, and all seems fine. But then comes Truman demanding more cuts. Now, at this time, the United States Air Force, which is a brand new branch, comes up with this new doctrine called strategic bombing. It's basically warfare, but with nuclear weapons. All Congress has to do, the Air Force says, is build us a fleet of U.S.-based long-range strategic heavy bombers. Anybody messes with us, we can wipe them from the face of the planet. But the U.S. Navy, and I think rightly so, comes along and goes, whoa, you can't just go around bombing everybody with atomic weapons. It gives you trouble. Pretty soon there won't be a planet that is not viable. Besides, the Navy says, our carriers can do it all. We can provide close ground support. We can also carry the bombers that are going to be carrying the nuclear weapons. If, and this is important, if you let us build super carriers, say like the one that we proposed called the USS United States, it has the capacity to carry a 100,000 pound aircraft. Now, the first Secretary of Defense because it's been newly created, is James Forrestal, a former secretary of the Navy. And you need to remember that. He thought this supercarrier was a great idea. So in July of 1948, the USS United States begins construction. But then Truman gets reelected, which a lot of people didn't see coming, and he asks Forrestal to resign. Or I've also heard that Forrestal had bad health. Either, either way, Truman wants him out. Why? Because he cannot stand up to the Navy. Meanwhile, the Air Force is fighting back. They're saying, you know, for the cost of one supercarrier, we can build 500 B-36s, and they can carry nuclear weapons. And as you can imagine, public opinion, when they heard this, they swung towards the Air Force because they want more bang for their buck. So in March of 1949, Forstall is out, and the new Secretary of Defense is in. His name is Lewis A. Johnson. Johnson's qualifications... He was a fundraiser that helped Truman get reelected, and he liked the Air Force's position in this question. So, less than a month after taking office, Johnson orders that the construction for the USS United States stop, and this is in April of 1949. Now, as you can imagine, the Navy goes ballistic. The Secretary of the Navy, John L. Sullivan, and other high-ranking admirals resign right on the spot. This is their way of protesting. But Johnson, the new Secretary of Defense, hasn't got time for this. He replaces Sullivan with Francis P. Matthews, who's a lawyer. What is his qualification? He also was a fundraiser during the Truman re-election. Now, Johnson basically drops his own atomic bomb. The, the Secretary of Defense says the following. There's no reason for having a Navy or Marine Corps. General Bradley, who is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, tells me that amphibious operations are a thing of the past. We'll never have any more amphibious operations. That does away with the Marine Corps, and the Air Force can do anything the Navy can do, so that does away with the Navy. This guy's just cutting it. So in May of 1949, Johnson was about to gut the Marines. But as you can imagine, they have a lot of connections in Congress. Congress goes ape shit. And to fight back, they start investigating Johnson's possible connections to the manufacturer of the B-36. Now, this investigation gets found out by a Naval Intelligence Unit, OP-23, 
which puts out an anonymous document called the Worth Paper. It basically says that the B-36 is a billion-dollar blunder. So it's getting ugly now. It's starting to get that out there in public. So there has to be an investigation into this. So the Worth Paper was written by a former Navy commander, and so obviously he is, he's prejudiced. He, he's, he's not being objective. But they handle their investigation, and they find that there is no connection between Johnson and the manufacturer of the long-range bomber. So Worth has to be sacrificed. He is fired. But then there's a second hearing, and this is about cutting the Navy budget and expanding the Air Force for its strategic bomber forces. So obviously the Navy's freaking out. Now, the new Secretary of the Navy, Francis Matthews, says that no Navy man will be punished for his testimony. You get up there and you just tell the truth. You think... You, Tell them what you really think. As you can imagine, it's a who's who of naval officers that get up there and they testify. And as you can imagine, they all say the same thing. They speak out against the strategic bombing plan. So now, it's, again, it's getting ugly. It's getting out in the open. Now, the House Armed Services Committee, which is responsible for funding and oversight of the Department of Defense, finds examples of when the administration and these service branches were stepping over their limits in so many ways. So it's like... The military is not listening to the administration. They want to be able to fight wars the way they want to, but they have political masters that they're ignoring. And now people who work for Truman are going after, in personal and um, unprofessional ways, people that that disagree with them. So this is getting ugly. So they have to try and think this thing through and try to get everybody to calm down because this is about the security of the United States. There will be another war. They don't know when. They don't know with who against who and how it's going to go. But you have to have your military in order because this is getting serious. So as you can imagine, Secretary Matthews goes after those who testified against his wishes, all those naval guys. So there's a whole bunch more that are fired. And it's only at this point that Truman steps in. He's the only one who has the authority to handle this thing. So he comes in he is going to put Johnson down. He's actually going to use the distraction that's coming to fire Secretary of Defense to get someone else's in there. But he basically says to the military branches, you will toe the line. You will do what I say. You will fight the way I want you to fight. You can give me recommendations, but I'm the one who's in charge here. And again, this is a very big moment in U.S. history because you've seen other countries where the military comes in, they get dominant, they get too much power, they get greedy, and suddenly they're picking how things are going to be, and they're the ones who are actually picking leaders in the future, or they themselves become the leader. So, th so this is a very intense situation that the tr uh, president has to step in. So now it's established. The president, not the Navy, will be making all the decisions. So the military budgets are now focused on building 1,000 long-range strategic bombers. They're going to all carry nuclear missiles. They're going to be placed around the world at various bases, and that way we've got the entire world covered. The Navy and the Army's budgets are going to be cut. But then comes the Korean War. The Truman administration decides it's going to get involved, as we covered, which means the Army and the Navy... Their budgets are saved. And as Truman decided right away not to use nuclear weapons, that means conventional means have to be used. So when Truman steps up and he says he wants a naval blockade against North Korea, it can't be done. The U.S. Navy does not have enough ships because of all the cutting they've been doing for the last five years. Even though they've been fighting it, they have been cutting things. And the Army is not up to snuff because of their severe cutbacks. And I think we've already covered a lot of that, certainly when it comes to MacArthur's troops. So 
the Korean War is underway. With this diversion, Truman gets rid of Secretary of Defense Johnson. He lets him take the fall for all the cuts, all the blame. Now, Truman needs someone in there who not only knows the military, but who is respected by the three services. And of course, that was George Marshall. So the Korean War made it clear that aircraft carriers would still be the primary means of projecting conventional power, and that's what Truman has decided to use. And it's also going to be carriers that are going to help enforce U.S. foreign policy. And of course, as the Cold War goes on, the foreign policy of America becomes a lot more important. So in the end, the Navy will get its supercarriers, but they have to wait until 1955. These things are like 60,000 tons. They're one and a half times size of the World War II Midway-class carriers. And the first one built was the USS Forrestal, the first Secretary of Defense and a former Navy man. Oh, oh, you finished. Jesus. <laughs> well, I was expecting. Fucking Christ, what happened to Rita's... <laughs> What happened to Reader's Digest, Harris? I was expecting you to jump in. I just thought that whole thing was cool. I didn't. I fell asleep about 15 <laughs> minutes ago. I didn't know much about that, so I went a little deep. Yeah, you think? <clears throat> I was expecting you to give me like th- three lines and that'd be enough. I'll be like, yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, uh well, here's my yep. main point. It's known as the Revolt of the Admirals, but f- from henceforth we shall refer to it as Truman's Purge. Yes. When Stalin gets rid of his generals, <laughs> it's a purge. <laughs> when Truman gets rid of his admirals, it's a revolt it's of the admirals. Fault. I got gotcha. you. It's their gotcha. fault. Exactly. When Tru- got ugly. See? See how this works? When Stalin does it, right. it's a purge. And, and the words you use Truman. Is important. That's the point you were making. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Truman purged his yeah. navy. So, of course, when the Korean War started, Truman called for a naval blockade of North Korea <laughs> and they went, with what? We can't. It's like, well, with our navy, we don't have one anymore. Yeah. You purged you it. Made it. <laughs> oh, my God. It's true. They didn't have the army. They didn't have the navy. And you weren't going to use nuclear missiles. What the fuck are you going to do now? Getting back to the budget question, yeah. um, I want to point out that at the but by April 1945, the war was costing American taxpayers over $100 billion a year, which at the time was 41% yes. of GDP. Oh, my God. Do you know what percentage of the GDP the U.S. spends on military on the military budget today? I am too afraid. I fifteen uh, percent. I have no idea. I have no idea. No, should you I know? Don't pay any attention. Yeah, you're an American. You don't pay attention to where your government spends your fucking money. No. Do you think less of me now? <laughs> That's not possible. <laughs> uh, How much money does you your know. government? How much does your government spend on military? $4.95 every week, <laughs> mind you. We never let it slip. percent. 3.145% of still, GDP is what it it's is. It's a trillion today. dollar economy. So that's what Truman wanted yeah, to get it down exactly. to. It's what he got it down to. It's what it is today. It went up, but it's back down to that. Now, that's $623 billion today. 
uh, a year, give or take, uh, the, the US spends on right. military. Um, it's, uh, you know, still bigger than I think the next 10 countries in the world put together military yes. budgets. Um, yes, in terms of, of pure volume, because the US GDP is uh, so strong. Um, although China's is bigger now, right. their, their GDP uh, at a PPP level anyway. Uh, but imagine if it was still running at 41%, which is what it was at the end of World War II, is, was going to be my point. Oh my uh, imagine God. what America's military would look like yeah. today. So a CIA report yeah, on the, the 28th Space of June Force. 1950 said the invasion of the Republic of Korea by the North Korean army was undoubtedly undertaken at Soviet direction and Soviet material support is unquestionably being provided. The Soviet objective is the elimination of the last remaining anti-communist bridgehead on the mainland of Northern Asia, thereby undermining the position of the United States and the Western powers throughout the Far East. Bullshit. Now, what is that based on? Yeah, a couple of things. CIA uh, report based on? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So a couple of issues here. It wasn't undertaken at Soviet direction. Um, Stalin, as far as we know, Stalin reluctantly agreed to it after he was convinced by Mao and Kim that it would all be over quickly and that the Americans uh, right. didn't care. Right. Secondly, the key phrase I want you to think take from this is under, thereby undermining the position of the United States. <clears throat> that is the key phrase here. That's the issue. It, yeah. It's not about... Korea. You know, communist versus capitalist. Right. It's not about the Korean people. It's not about freedom. It's about undermining the position of the United States in the Far East. That was the CIA's concern. So Truman, anyway, after the, the invasion and the US the UN Security Council meeting, made three immediate decisions. Mm-hmm. MacArthur was told to evacuate the 2,000 Americans that were still in Korea. Unfortunately, there were ships, the one ship that the Navy still had left. Uh, it was the USS Gilligan. Uh, it was told Skipper. to evacuate all the Americans. Right. <laughs> MacArthur was also ordered to provide the South Koreans with every available item of equipment and round of ammunition that could be sent from Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he said, well, what do we do if the Japanese rise up? Don't worry about that. We, we're working on Godzilla. It's all good. <laughs> Third, his area of command was to be extended to include Formosa, now Ooh. known as Taiwan. Now, right. this is where Chiang Kai-shek was hiding from Mao and, yeah. and running the Chinese government in exile. The Americans were convinced that this whole thing was the first play of a huge orchestrated Soviet effort to right. take over the world. Of course, they couldn't have been more wrong. And if they'd only <laughs> asked Stalin yeah, and, and had a diplomatic relationship with Stalin, right. this would have played out differently. If we yeah. were back in early 1945 and he was meeting with FDR... He would have said, uh, uh, Franklin, my friend, uh, let me ask you a question. Uh, South Korea, should I take it? Should I not take it? Should Kim take it or not take it? I I don't know. Have some water. Here's a lemon tree. (laughs) Have my lemon tree and just tell me what to do. I don't know what to do. I just want to keep you happy, Franklin. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And he would have said, well, (laughs) well, 
Joe, probably best that you don't uh, tell Kim don't don't do it. Yeah. Okay, I'll tell Kim don't do it, my friend. Here's another Here's lemon oil. tree. Have my lemon tree. Right. They didn't no, talk about it. Stalin no didn't give a shit, really. Right. But um, he had said no, no, no. Finally, he said yes, and of course they see this as one thing, but really it's another thing. Um, on June 26th, the Korean ambassador got another phone call from Syngman Rhee. This time he sounded pretty shaken. Right. Said things were going well. Oh. Uh, Sol had fallen or was about to fall. He was jumping on a train to get the fuck out of Dodge. <laughs> Ordered them to beg the Americans for support. So they met, the Koreans this is in Washington, they met with Truman and Atchison Ooh, again that day right. where they were told the US would support the UN resolution. Now, they weren't exactly sure what that meant because <laughs> there was no UN resolution at that point. So they left confused and upset. But the next day, they got a phone call from Truman who promised immediate and unequivocal US air and naval support. Now we're They said, with it. what? He said, with my, with my huge <laughs> navy. They said, what, the USS Gilligan? He said, well, yes. Look. We're working on it. <laughs> working on it. When Singman Rhee heard about the promise of your support, he said it was too little and too late. Oh. Douglas MacArthur later wrote, I could not help, I could not help being <coughs> amazed at the manner in which this great decision was being made. With no submission to Congress, whose duty it is to declare war, and without even consulting the field commander involved, the members of the executive branch, agreed to enter the Korean War. All the risks inherent in this decision, including the possibility of Chinese and Russian involvement, applied then just as much as they applied later. My 19-year-old son, Hunter, who wants to move to LA and become an actor, has been taking American accent oh, lessons at, right. with, with a teacher and also with Chrissy. And I have to laugh. I just say, <laughs> I just do... This voice. When I want to do Americans, it's, it's, I do David Markham. I have two American accents that I do. David Markham. If I think about it, Chrissy said this to me last night. Like, I'll sit in on his lessons with Chrissy, and if I try and do it, I can't do it. If I try and speak in an American accent, I can't. Do it. But if in my head I go, well, I'm David Markham now. Well, my friends. I could not help Perfect. being amazed at the manner in which this great decision was being made. I can do American if I do J. David Markham. Um, anyway, Doug, Douglas MacArthur wasn't the only one who was shocked and surprised, obviously, at the U.S. response. Moscow and China yeah, what the fuck? They did double take so fast their heads fell off and they had to pick them up. Well, they were made in China, right. heads is the Ooh, problem boom, boom. here. They had to put them back on. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, wait, 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 wait. You've been telling us for six months you don't care about yeah. South Korea. Yeah. All of a sudden you care about South Korea? Fuck. When did that happen? Yeah. Not just them. The British were surprised. The British, British ambassador in Peking cabled to London a few days later saying, the strength and extent of American reaction has been a shocking surprise and will prove a grave embarrassment to the people's government. Oh, my God. Especially Truman's decision to put the U.S. in control of Formosa, a.k.a. Taiwan, 
mm-hmm. which was obviously going to bind the US even closer than they already were. They'd already spent $3.5 billion oh. on Chiang Kai-shek and the Nationalists. Right. Now they're taking over his island, which, as far as Mao concerned, is part of China yeah. then and as now. Now, Mao, you can understand, is going to be pretty pissed off when the Americans just took a bit of China. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that, chi- that island, Formosa, <laughs> that's ours now. That's yeah. us. Yeah. We're, we're, we'll have that. Uh, we are now in military control of part of China. Mao's Damn. like, fucking what? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but he can't do anything. I don't. I don't fucking think so. so yeah. But... It, yeah, but, they were like, yeah, yeah it's ours yeah. now. We have the Seventh Fleet that says, oh, yeah. So on at 10.45 p.m. Tuesday. Ju- seventh Fleet. What? Gilligan's, oh. Gilligan's ship is the Seventh Fleet at U- this point. USS yeah. Gilligan. We got the Gilligan. <laughs> get the Gilligan and, and the... Uh, and the and the girls right. on there. I, I, I never watched USS Gilligan's Gilligan. You got the USS Marianne and Ginger. USS Mister and Mrs. Howell. Yeah, so we got it all. USS Professor. Um, so at ten forty five p.m. on a Tuesday, June twenty seventh, the U.S. Ambassador Warren Austin sponsored a resolution which called on member nations to render such assistance to the Republic of Korea as may be necessary to repel the armed attack and to restore international peace and security to the area. Believe it or not, this passed 7-1. to Yugoslavia abstained. So America is getting what it wants. Actually, my records say Yugoslavia was the one that voted against it. I probably typed in haste. I know in the book that you're looking at, no, in the book you're looking at, it says abstained. I don't, I don't think they did. This is United Nations Security mm. Council Resolution 83, uh, according, according to the other right. stuff that I've read on that on the UN's website, uh, Yugoslavia uh, absta- uh, uh, voted against. Soviet Union, again, uh, were not <laughs> present because they were still trying to get back in the room. Oh, no, 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 we, we, we changed our mind. Uh, yeah. Um, it was... Uh, Yugoslavia against, present but not voting, uh, which would be abstained, was Egypt and India, and absent was the USSR, according to um, the United Nations' own website. Uh, Now, at a press conference afterwards, Truman agreed with a reporter who asked, would it be correct to call it a police action under the United Nations? And he said, yes, It would. So it's not a war. It's a police action. Um, How many Americans died in this police action? Uh, 50-odd thousand uh, Americans died in this police action? Yes. And millions of Koreans. Millions of Koreans died under a police action. Now, Truman, of course, as we've said many times, has been accused by his Republican opponents of being weak on communism. Now... He had a chance to show them <laughs> who was boss. So, qui bono? Who benefits from this? Mm-hmm. Douglas MacArthur benefits. The uh, military-industrial complex benefits. Guys like Paul Neitz, Dean Acheson, who wanted to push through NSC sixty-eight, benefit. Uh, and Truman benefits because it gives him a chance to look strong. Singman Rhee benefits because he's now got the American right. military on his side and. Despite him being deeply unpopular uh, with the Americans, he's now the man of the hour 
Um, he's not going anywhere, even though he's just been voted out. Doesn't matter. He's the only guy they know there. Everyone else there, they just call. Gook. You know. Oh, sorry. China girl, and they're like, we're not, even, we're not Chinese. Yeah, gooks and China. They're like, oh, we're Koreans. They're like, ah, whatever. The State Department then made a series of flurried calls to the British, Canadian, French, and Australians and other non-communist powers, asking for a token commitment in the cause of freedom. Freedom. Australia agreed to send four four kangaroos, <laughs> a wombat, and a didgeridoo. Uh, MacArthur. Yeah was to be the commander of the entire yeah, police force. Yes. Police action. Now, dubious dubious choice, even understood at the time to be a dubious right. choice. The New York Times noted, Diplomacy and a vast concern for the opinions and sensitivities <coughs> of others are the political oh. qualities essential to this new assignment. And these are precisely <laughs> the qualities General MacArthur has been accused of lacking in the past. So Truman can't say he didn't know because it's in the fucking New York Times. Come on. Yeah. Now, um, I'm just going to wrap up by doing a little bit of a media storm here, Ray. So if you have any final uh, comments, you should get Uh, them in now. But please don't spend another 20 minutes talking about the revolt of the admirals. I was born... No, no, I have nothing. Go, Go right ahead and wrap it up. So the New York Times did support the police action. They called it a momentous and courageous <clears throat> act and welcomed the revision of the American policy in the Far East that helped to lose China. Um, so they were for it, uh, just as the New York Times was for the uh, invasion of Iraq right. in 2003. <laughs> Uh, and recently uh, supporting the uh, action of overthrowing the attempted American overthrow of the God. Venezuelan government, right. which failed. So far, failed. Other news organisations at the time weren't in support. I went through, again, newspapers.com and read uh, quite a mm-hmm. few uh, newspapers from the time. Here's what I found. Um On June 27th, the Chicago Tribune ran a story which said American involvement in war appeared unlikely tonight as the fall of South Korea to communist invaders from North Korea Korea appeared imminent. Chairman Connolly, Democrat of Texas, of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, said President Truman does not want to take a course of action in the new Far Eastern crisis, which might involve this country in Mm. war until all aspects of the matter have been considered by him. Republican Senate leaders agreed unanimously that the communist attack should not be allowed to involve this country in war, although they pledged themselves to military to support military aid and supplies to the embattled South Korean Republic. Right. That position obviously didn't last long. This came on the same day that Truman offered South Korea unmitigated mm. support... Um, so yes, obviously things escalated from here, but the position of, uh, the Republican Senate leaders at the time was that the America should not get involved in a war in South Korea. Right. Um, obviously we'll see how that changed as we went along. That same edition of the Tribune, by the way, had the first eyewitness account of the attack from an American, uh, Walter Simmons, a Chicago Tribune reporter, he said that he and the other Americans in Seoul barely escaped in wow. jeeps. But Amer- Middle America seemed to be in favour of it. It's interesting to read 
some of the newspaper articles of the time and note the biases. This is where I have my I.F. Stone quote that I was looking for mm. earlier. His book on the Korean War that he wrote in 1952, he writes, emphasis, omission, and distortion rather than outright lying are the tools of the war propagandists. And this book may help the reader to learn how to sift out the facts for himself. He was a very, very uh, popular journalist himself at the time, had his own newspaper Mm -hmm. that took took a very progressive leftist view on America. But he's absolutely right, and this is the same thing that Chomsky and Herman pointed out in their book on manufacturing consent. The way propaganda works in the West, people don't usually understand this, is it's not by usually by outright lying, although that does happen. It's through emphasis, omission, and distortion. What are the stories that we cover versus the stories that we don't cover? What are the aspects of the stories that we give more time and focus to uh, than the aspects of it that we give less to. Mm-hmm. What what are the what are the facts that we omit from the stories? What are the facts that we distort? What are the, the what are the words that we use that give a different impression? Like uh, what did I say before? Was, you know, we we give aid. They're not a puppet regime. If the other people are giving them aid, they're a puppet right. regime. If we're giving them yeah. aid, we're, we're uh, supporting yeah, freedom. Case. That kind yeah. of stuff, right? So here's an example. Boston Globe, June 26, 1950. U.S. faces dilemma on aid to Korea. Could mean war. But if communism wins by default, Americans would lose friendly Asia. So there you go. Uh, America would lose Asia. Right. They're losing Asia. Losing friendly Asia. It's, it's a yours. America yeah. owns it. It's You're going to lose it. People are trying to take yeah. your Asia. Don't, you know, don't. Don't don't take a man's Asia. That's not cool, don't take dude. My China. It's our Asia. Don't take we don't want to Asia. lose our Asia. Right. right. Hmm. Yeah. It goes on, the same article. The United States and Russia are in opposite corners in the Korean War. Russia is supporting Northern Korea, a communist puppet state, which attacked the American-supported Southern Korea before dawn Sunday in an attempt to win control of the whole country. Get that? Nice. North Korea is a puppet state. Right. But South Korea is American supported. Aww. Like we're the good guys. It's fucking gold, right? <laughs> it's right there. That's all you need to know. North Korea is a puppet state. Yeah. South Korea is American supported. That's pretty and much lucky. it in a fucking nutshell. Yes. That's American propaganda 101. That sentence, man. <laughs> Thank you, Boston Boston Globe. Honolulu Star Bulletin wrote, if by good fortune and immense effort the combination of South Koreans and Americans can turn the tide and drive the red invaders back across the 38th parallel, the movement should not stop there. It should not stop until the southern forces have taken over and occupied all the communist strongholds in the north. It should not stop until Korea is unified and under a government sanctioned by the United Nations and directly supervised by the United States as the only power with the material means to carry out such supervision. So, wow, let's unpick that. Red invaders. Yeah. Red invaders, they're fucking Koreans. It's their own They're country. They can't be invaders right. in their own right. country. Did Abraham Lincoln invade the South or did he unify? <laughs> right? Red right. invaders. 
the US should not stop until Korea is unified. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So it's okay to do what yeah. the North are trying to do? The North need to be stopped. Why? They're trying to unify the country. What will we do after we defeat them? We will unify the country. Wait, isn't that what they're trying to do? Yes, but they're trying to do it in the wrong way. Their kind of unification isn't the right kind of unification. Why not? Because the United States needs to supervise the the country afterwards. Is that a puppet regime? No, we're not not puppet regiming them. We're supervising them. We're supporting them. Yeah, they are invaders. We're not invaders. They're Koreans in their own country. We're going to get involved, and we're, we're, but we're not invaders, even though we're a different nation. They're invaders. It's the same bucket people. But makes, no, they're the invaders. We are the sweet. Makes sense to me. Oh, makes God. It's classic. Um, uh, and, of course, not all Koreans in the South were fans of the Americans or Rhee. As we said, Rhee had just lost the elections in May. Opposition parties that had survived, you know, most of them weren't communists, but they'd had a huge uh, uh, boost in, in their right. votes that they took, that mostly independents, because you couldn't be a communist because he'd shut down the communists or the socialist parties there. Drew Pearson, the uh, journalist we've quoted from before, I think he was uh, one of the guys that leaked the fact that the uh, 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 there was Soviet spies in the mm-hmm. uh, Roosevelt and Truman administration. Um, he quoted a spokesman for the South Korean Army deserters who said, we will grasp firmly the sword in order to obliterate from our fatherland the so-called American military advisors, the United Nations Commission, and their lackey, the Syngman Rhee gang. We pledge our last drop of blood. So these are South Korean (laughs) military people saying, we want to get rid of the Americans and Syngman Rhee. The British ambassador, Oliver Franks, sent a cable to London saying the average American is pleased that the United States has for once boldly taken the initiative, proud that it has called the Soviet bluff and won't let them get away with it. Virtually all shades of opinion wholeheartedly support the president. An hour after Truman's announcement of America's military commitment to South Korea, Congress approved a bill extending the draft by 314 votes to four. Damn. On June 30th, the military assistance program for Korea passed the Senate by 66 votes to zero. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, American politicians on both sides were all for this. Uh, most of middle America, most of the American media was all wave the flag, rah, right. rah, chant, chant, let's we're go. America, Team America, <laughs> fuck yeah. Um, Oliver Franks, the British envoy, was a close friend of Dean Acheson, a big admirer of Dean Acheson. He wrote, he came to believe that the United States had an appointment with destiny from which there was no way out but for the nation to lead and bend its whole energies to ordering the world. He could be irascible, romantic, short-tempered, but he was a blade of steel. And that's the problem. Like this, 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 from my perspective, this view that Atchison and, and many Americans since have had mm-hmm. that it's your destiny right. to order the world. Yeah. If the Soviets are trying to order the world, Boo. it's, uh, you know, a bad thing. If the right. Americans are trying to order the world, like Jesus. it's to be celebrated. 
As yes. speaking on behalf of my official position as a representative of the world, I can tell you that <laughs> we want to say, leave us the fuck alone. We don't want you. We don't need you. You're the cause of more problems than you have been of solutions. And if Americans take umbrage at that, you know, you need to read some fucking books. If you think America has done less harm than it has done good in the last 70 years, you seriously need to read some fucking books. Come at me, bro, but come with facts and come with arguments because uh, I will show you the list of countries where you've overthrown the governments and installed military dictatorships and the millions of civilians men, women, children, priests, nuns, that they have killed with American military support. Yeah. Uh, and the numbers add up uh, massively over the last 70 years. I'll show you the, the children and civilians who have died because of economic sanctions that you've placed on their countries, not because those countries have attacked yours. Right. Or just because you didn't like, you just didn't like their government. So you placed economic sanctions, which means those countries couldn't buy medicine or fertilizer or couldn't sell their products and get money. So their children went hungry or their children couldn't get medicine and die. Their civilians died because they couldn't get heart medicine or this or that or the other or operations when they needed it. Yeah. Um, you know, just uh, read a fucking book, people, is all I'm asking. That's not to say America is unilaterally bad and has only done bad things, but, you know, it, it's... Be honest. It's, well, yeah, both. Yeah. Yeah. There's good and there's bad and probably more bad than good. I mean, I might be wrong on that. Maybe if I did the maths carefully, and it's complex maths, maybe we would decide it's more good than bad. But it's, it's a close-run thing at best, yeah. uh, to be honest. Anyway, let's wrap this shit up. Uh, despite some initial successes by the North, obviously the unexpected American response to the war dampened Kim Il-sung's yeah. confidence, and he kind of wavered after he was like, oh, shit, I thought this... <laughs> what? I thought, oh, fuck. Yeah. Stalin, however, apparently demanded that the war continue Encouraged, encouraged Kim with uh, new deliveries of military hardware, new military advisors. Mm. Stalin wrote to the Soviet ambassador in Pyongyang on the 1st of July 1950, in our opinion, the attack absolutely must continue. And the sooner South Korea is liberated, the less chance there is for intervention. Good point. So his view was, well... You get the tip in. we fucking done it yeah. now, son. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, as we go. With tippers in, might as well, might as well knock this bitch up, man. Because uh, her daddy, her daddy done found yeah. out. You stuck the tip Do what in. You can while you can. You might as well uh, push yeah, it. Yeah, let's try and g get it over <laughs> as quickly as possible. Heather, is that you? And uh, now that oh, we've sorry, <laughs> now that we've. <laughs> <laughs> now that <laughs> it's late, <laughs> no, hell, I don't know. <clears throat> I'm looking for where I'm looking for where is it? Uh, oh, yeah, oh, I'm hard. <laughs> I'm just hard, but I say I take your point, sir. Right in the balls. Yeah. 
All right. Well, we're way, way over time, mostly thanks to your revolt of the Admiral's dissertation. That's the end of episode 132. Uh, We may take a break next time and start talking about China or Israel. Now that we've kicked off the Korean War, like we kicked off the first Indochina War, we're going to jump around. Keep it fresh. Go in and out, in and out, in and out, in and and out. I'm hard. It's not sexy. Fuck. All right. Uh, Get your finger off that. It's a good thing I'm drunk. Just tell me you have your pants on while you listen to that. That's all uh, I need to know. We'll be... (laughs) Well, there's another clip. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Be nice to each other. Descended across the continent.